Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture and our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to continue Article 10 from the epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the negative statements, those things that we reject and condemn because they are against Scripture with regard to the teaching on church practices, which are called adiaphora, or matters of indifference. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Charlie Hendrickson. You've heard him on here before. He's one of the former hosts of Concord Matters. He's also the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri, and also serving Grace in DeSoto, Missouri. Pastor Hendrickson, it's great to have you back on Concord Matters. Yes, it's like uh, coming home. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and and just for the sake of our listeners, folks might remember that you were the one that first had me on as a guest, and then you had me yeah. on a few more times, and then eventually I just kind of had a takeover or something. I don't know. But... Well, about a year, about a year ago, I, I was asked to uh, serve as a visiting professor at my alma mater, Concordia University in Chicago. So that really, it would have been too many things on my plate anyways. Absolutely. Yeah. And it just kind of a group of things came together and uh, honored to be your guest and then one of the co-hosts with you. And then eventually as the host here to be able to have you back on, it's a great honor and we're uh, glad to have you with us. Well, it's good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go ahead then and jump into the article, Article 10, Church Practices. We've had a couple of episodes on this and this can't get enough discussion in the church today, even still, it seems. It just continues to be one of the most controversial things and a right understanding, a right confession of what we believe, teach, and confess as Lutheran Christians on this article is definitely still needed. And I think one of the great things to start with is what I've asked each of the guests that have been on covering this article is, Go ahead and give us your definition. You know, the reader's edition, Concordia reader's edition that we use on this show gives us the definition of adiaphora as matters of indifference. But even that needs some definition. What is it we're talking about here for you when we are talking about adiaphora or matters of indifference? Yeah, um, to say matters of indifference, while technically you could translate adiaphora in that way, it could be a, mis a little bit misleading. As though whatever you do in worship is fine, it really makes no difference at all. And that's not exactly the point. But the term adiaphora, as I indicated, is a word that comes into our practice from Greek, like undifferentiated or indifferent, that generally the way we define it is things neither commanded nor prohibited by God in Holy Scripture particularly with reference to rites and ceremonies. Rites, by that, I mean R-I-T-E-S, like rituals, and ceremonies would be the liturgical actions. So the rites would be the things that are the words that you use, and the ceremonies would be the actions that are used in worship. We're mostly using this term adiaphora in connection with liturgical or worship practices. One of the main formulator of the Formula of Concord was a man by the name of Martin Chemnitz, C-H-E-M-N-I-T-Z. And I've done some research on Chemnitz's other writings that inform the article here in the Formula of Concord. And in a writing he did, Adiaphora, from 1561, 16 years before the Formula of Concord, Chemnitz defines Adiaphora as, quote, Rights, R-I-T-E-S, rights in the church, which God neither commands nor forbids in his word. 
God permits matters of freedom in his church with this general idea that in the church they serve decorum, order, instruction, edification, or duties of love. So that's the context for this term adiapra, and it arose in the formula of Concord stemming from uh, controversies that arose within Lutheranism shortly after Luther's death, and we could review that if you wish. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and just give us a brief review of that a little bit? Yeah, so Martin Luther dies February 18th, 1546. The Roman Catholic Church had already started their Council of Trent in 1545, which was not going to be a free and fair council. It was mainly to do and anathematize Lutheranism in its doctrines and practices. So this is what I call the Empire Strikes Back, at least version one. Version two will be in the 1600s with the Thirty Years' War. But Catholic Church, in league with the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, are trying to come against the territories that had sided with Lutheranism, the Schmalkaldic League. And militarily now, the Holy Roman Empire is successful in putting pressure on the Lutheran territories to come back home to Rome. And to do that, they were insisting on certain practices of restoring certain practices, liturgical practices, uh, for example, that the Lutherans had discarded because they were giving the impression of false doctrine. So ceremonies concerning the Mass, the divine service, Rome was saying you have to take these things back. And so this put pressure on the Lutherans. So what Rome was insisting upon were things like, you've got to acknowledge all seven sacraments, not just the two or maybe three that you guys have, but you've got to acknowledge all seven. You've got to affirm transubstantiation, which was a scholastic medieval teaching regarding the Lord's Supper, that it was no longer bread and wine, but only the body and blood of Christ. Now, we do believe it is the body and blood of Christ, but that was going too far. A big one was that the Lutherans had to acknowledge the Pope as the supreme head of the church by divine right, which we could not do. Also, certain ceremonies connected with what is called the sacrifice of the Mass, ceremonies that gave in word or in deed the impression that the big thing in the sacrament is what we are doing, kind of reversing the direction of the arrows from God to us, but up from us to God, and that is not the big thing in the sacrament. I believe they also were hoping or wanting or forcing the Lutherans to restore private masses for the dead. They were coming against the doctrine of justification. All these were included in what was called the Augsburg Interim, which was a compromise forced on the Lutherans after this military defeat by the Holy Roman Emperor. So that's kind of the background. And whether the Lutherans would buckle and yield to these things or not, created then a controversy even after that immediate issue between groups within Lutheranism, one led by Philip Melanchthon and his followers, who were called the Philippists, and then on the other side, what were called the Genesio, or genuine Lutherans, led by a guy named Flacius. And so this caused controversy for years afterward, and that's why it's included in the formula of Concord as to how to resolve these differences between what you might call the more moderate or liberals who are compromising and the more conservative or confessional on the other side. That's a really great summary of kind of where we've been and the things that we've covered, which will be really helpful for us as we then push into these negative statements here to have that in the background of our mind. And that's what we're facing. There's one other thing that I'm not sure I've done a really good job in the last couple episodes of actually covering this in that summary that you gave us. It seems like the primary focus here is the Roman Catholic side, if you will. I don't really want to call it sides, but the Roman Catholic influence on the church. And you laid that out really well for us. Is there a reform side or basically the other groups that came out of the Reformation and so forth that is also we're defending ourselves against the sort of things that come in from that side in this article as well? Uh, Not so much in this article. It has application to what you're describing. And the primary, uh, well, what was really behind this was what Rome was trying to force on the Lutherans. But even at that time, Lutherans had distinguished themselves 
from what were called the Zwinglians on the matters of the Lord's Supper, who said that it only represents the body and blood of Christ. It is not the body and blood of Christ. And then later, the next generation of the Reformed, and this was mainly out of Switzerland, was a guy named Calvin, John Calvin, a huge figure in church history. And he was more subtle than Zwingli. You know, Zwingli was kind of crass and say, no, it's just representing the body and blood of Christ. Calvin could even say he believes in the real presence of Christ in the sacrament, but he doesn't mean the same thing that we mean. We believe that you are receiving in your mouth the very body of Christ in, with, and under the bread, and the very blood of Christ in, with, and under the cup. And Calvin doesn't mean that. He means you are sort of spiritually ascending up to Christ, who is located at the right hand of God in heaven, since he cannot be here in the sacrament. Now, this is a big issue at the time of the formative concord. Not so much in this article, but elsewhere, the disagreement with the Calvinists. And the Philippists, the followers of Melanchthon, did compromise too much with the When I say the Reformed in this context, I mean the Calvinists. Big issue. But in this article, it's mostly dealing with what is called the adiaphoristic controversy following Luther's death over against Rome. I could talk about where this article uh, applies in the early 1800s with the Prussian Union, where uh, I think that's a good application of this article over against the reform. You want to talk about that now, or do you want to talk about that when we touch on that uh, in times of persecution or, or clear confession is needed? I think that would be a good application for that point when we get to the negative statements. Yes, let's put that off for just a moment here. Definitely want to get to that for sure, but I'm with you and wanted to highlight that the primary idea here is, is that we are refuting the Roman Catholic influence after Luther's death especially, that that's what this article is focused on. And we've highlighted a lot on this show as we've gone through the epitome of the Formula of Concord here, how quite often the issue is the reformed influence that's coming on. And so generally, you know, the, the Augsburg Confession and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, obviously the main thing in sight there is the Roman Catholic and us asserting our true confession of what the church has truly taught faithfully from Scripture all along. But then here in this Formula of Concord, we see more often that we're distinguishing ourselves from the reformed and the corruptions of teachings that they went too far on. But then this is kind of a return to the main focus is the Roman Catholic, but the Reformed is definitely running in the background there as well. And we'll certainly highlight that as we go through. Yeah, well, I would say in other articles in the Formula of Concord, the Calvinist errors are addressed in uh, particularly about the sacrament and the crypto-Calvinists within Lutheranism. So that would be more, for example, in uh, Article 7, on the Supper of Christ and Article 8, the Person of Christ, where our differences with the Calvinists come more to the fore. Absolutely. And so we've highlighted those specific issues, and then this adiaphoric controversy is more specifically focused on the Roman Catholic. Absolutely. All of that great background to jump us into the negative statements then that we understand this is what we're talking about in the specifics of what we reject and condemn here. So let's go ahead and get into it. Again, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord. We are reading from Article 10 of the Epitome of the Formula of Concord of Church Practices. By the way, Sean, mm -hmm. you mentioned about uh, this reader's edition, and I, I know many of our listeners have that. There are helpful editorial introductions about the various articles in the pages leading up to the article, the formula itself. And so they have a section on the controversy about adiaphora in the editorial pages leading up to the formula itself. Absolutely. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into these negative statements. So right. this is, again, epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 10 of church practices, which are called adiaphora or matters of indifference. And this is paragraph 8, and we'll also get paragraph 9 with the first negative statement. We reject and condemn as wrong and contrary to God's word when the following are taught. And then this is the first negative statement, paragraph 9. Human ordinances and institutions in the church should be regarded as a divine worship in themselves or part of it. 
All right. So what are the confessors here talking about with regard to this first negative statement? It seems connected to an earlier affirmative statement, but what is it that we're specifically rejecting and condemning here? That matters of liturgical practice that are man-made, we reject the idea that those are necessary for true worship of God. This harkens back, and the formula always harkens back to the Augsburg Confession as the primary Lutheran confession. They always want to make that clear. They're not saying anything different than what Luther and the Augsburg confessors were stating. And so this harkens back to Articles 7 and 15 in the Augsburg Confession. So in Article 7 of the Augsburg Confession, where it says the church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is purely taught and the sacraments are correctly administered, for the true unity of the church, it is enough, satis est in the Latin, it is enough to agree about the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It is not necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men, should be the same everywhere. So this is sort of restating that. There may be a value in having certain man-made traditions or customs or observances, but it is not necessary or essential to the true worship of God. And then also in Article 15 of the Augsburg Confession on church ceremonies, it states, our churches teach that ceremonies ought to be observed and may be observed without sin. Also, ceremonies and other practices that are profitable for tranquility and good order in the church, in particular, holy days, festivals, and the like, ought to be observed. So in that paragraph, the Augsburg confessors are saying, yeah, we, we keep many traditions. We're not throwing everything out. But then they say, yet the people are taught that consciences are not to be burdened as though observing such things was necessary for salvation. They are also taught that human traditions instituted to make atonement with God, to merit grace and to make satisfaction for sins, are opposed to the gospel and the doctrine of faith. So vows and traditions concerning meats and days and so forth, instituted to merit grace and to make satisfaction for sins, are useless and contrary to the gospel. So that's the context for this first negative statement about human ordinances and institutions in the church, that we reject the idea that human ordinances and institutions in the church should be regarded as a divine worship in themselves or part of it. So is it fair to say the basic of the question that we should be asking with regard to this is, what are the requirements in order for church to be church? Yeah, and what the Lutherans are saying is, we, should, we need to agree on the doctrine of the gospel and uh, the administration of the sacraments. Now, beyond that, uh, we can have a discussion about how to do that in a way that is most fitting. It doesn't mean anything goes, but you cannot say that a human man-made tradition, even though it may be excellent, that this is essential or necessary in order for there to be divine worship or necessary for salvation or that our actions merit grace. We can have a discussion about the relative value of certain man-made traditions, and as we, we saw, the Lutherans do value traditions. But if it is forced as necessary, or a part of uh, necessary for salvation, I mean, you must do it this way or else you're going to hell, uh, and you must yield to the bishops who are forcing this upon you, then that's crossing the line. Yeah, the the last couple episodes as we've been kind of dancing around this conversation as well, not dancing around, we, we've been discussing this in the affirmative statements and the history and background and so forth. I, I kept trying to think and rack my brain for a principle that was given to me as I went through seminary in my Lutheran worship class, you know, how we're taught, you know, to consider how we lead the worship service and when it might be appropriate to consider for the lack of a better term, innovations to the service or particular customs and circumstances and so forth like that. And I finally found in my old note, this was from uh, Dr. James Brower, who taught my worship class. And he said this, and I think this really captures it well for us. He said, the central principle around which Christian worship revolves is justification by grace through faith. That's the center of everything and everything else flows forth from it. 
And so mm-hmm. to, to answer the question then, right, so what's essential for church to be church? Well, the article on justification, it's the article upon which the church stands and falls and everything else is decided from that. And so I'm with you. I like how you said that there, you know, we, we can consider what might be right and beneficial in the service, but we've got to start our conversation with that article of justification by grace through faith. Whenever I teach about the sacraments, particularly about the Lord's Supper, on the dry erase board, I'll often draw two arrows, vertical arrows, one going up and one going down, to distinguish between sacrament and sacrifice. And what is the big deal in the divine service? It's the arrow from God to us. Now, to be sure, in that context, we offer up the sacrifice of praise, right? with our prayers and hymns and so forth. But the main thing in the sacrament is God coming to us with body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Rome flipped the arrows around. And again, it goes right to the heart, the, the chief article of Christian faith, which is the article on justification. So that's what Rome was wanting to force upon us, was that the big thing is what the priest or what the church is doing or what we're doing by doing the Mass rather than what God is giving us in the Mass. And speaking about force things upon us, I think we can then push forward into paragraph 10, negative statement number two. When such ceremonies, ordinances, and institutions are violently forced on the community of God, the churches of God, as necessary, contrary to its Christian confession, which it has in outward things. All right, so go ahead and talk about this then. All right, so it says here about these are things we reject and condemn as wrong. When such ceremonies, ordinances, and institutions are violently forced on the community of God or the churches of God as necessary. This is what Rome did following their military victories, like in 1547, 1548, the year or two after Luther's death. And actually was violent. There were Lutheran pastors who were exiled or imprisoned or in a few cases, sometimes even killed, because they resisted what Rome was trying to force upon them. So it really was violent. So whether it is literally blood-red or sort of uh, economic marginalizing, I have good friends in the Church of Sweden, and um, it's, and one of my friends there calls what has happened in the, in the Church of Sweden not a blood-red martyrdom, but sort of a gray martyrdom, in that those who upheld the true Christian faith within the Church of Sweden would be marginalized. They could not get advancement. Their candidates for ordination would not be ordained. So even if it isn't physical force, it can be economic ostracism and or exile, this sort of thing. Which perhaps we're even starting to see here in the United States as well. I, I remember uh, Reverend Dr. Ron Feuerhahn, a, a mutual friend of ours and uh, father in the ministry as well, that he used to talk about how kind of the way that we deal with things in America is we just cut the pastor's salary or stop paying him and fire him, which isn't technically supposed to happen even within our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but we see it happen. And so that's kind of that gray martyrdom. Is that what you called it? Yeah. Yeah. And and so... Or if in, uh, you know, some of our bishops or district presidents, if they you know, how they load the terms, you know, are you rigid or are you evangelical? You know, if you're, a, if you just want to simply do the hymnal uh, as it's presented, then you are sometimes regarded as rigid and inflexible and mean-spirited or whatever. And then if you just go along with anything that people want, then you're considered evangelical. And so it affects uh, pastors' pay and livelihood or being forced out of a congregation in that way too. Well, then let me ask you about this. Would it be considered forcing things upon a congregation when we say, I'm just going to do what's in the hymnal? Well, a, a wise pastor will work with where the people are. You know, even with both kinds in the sacrament, which is what Christ instituted, right? To have both the eating and the drinking, both the bread and the cup. Uh, When they were coming out of Rome in the early 1520s, uh, Luther would give it a little time, you know, a year or two, to sort of move into that. And so I think it's wise, like in my congregation, 
they had like communion first and third Sundays. Well, the Lutheran and Christian history is to offer the sacrament every Sunday. Well, I didn't insist on that my first Sunday there. I worked with the congregation and brought them along, taught, extolled the sacrament and so forth. And so maybe after, oh, how long did it take? Maybe four years. And then we had a good consensus within the congregation to move toward and actually to implement every Sunday communion. And it was not an issue. It was not divisive because we dealt with it patiently and brought people along. Yeah, I'm definitely with you. And that's certainly something to consider is that what is the central principle for us again, right? The article on justification. Let's let's keep our focus there and then patiently teach and instruct as we go along and folks will come along. Pastor Henderson, it's definitely great to have you back on with lots of great conversation with you. We're going to take a break here. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL. Five hundred years ago, the spread of the Lutheran Reformation was supported by the generous financial contributions of German princes and other benefactors who desired that the clear truths of God's word be proclaimed throughout the land. Today, you have the opportunity to be the benefactors who spread those same timeless truths through the work of KFUO Radio. Hi, I'm Pastor Sean Smith, host of Concord Matters. During this share please consider making a donation to KFUO so that shows like Concord Matters may continue to proclaim the pure teaching of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can show your appreciation for your Christ-confessing pastor, family member, or loved one by acknowledging them with the gift of a KFUO Day sponsorship. You can also make a one-time or an ongoing gift at kfuo.org or to make a gift by text message, text KFUO to 41444. Thank you for listening, for your generous support, and until next time, keep confessing, church. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Charlie Henriksen, former host on this show, and great to have him back. He's the pastor at St. Matthew in Bonterre, Missouri, also serving Grace in DeSoto, Missouri right now. And just before the break, we had great discussion talking about sort of a contemporary application of how we can consider when something is being forced upon us and a good way to not force things is to patiently teach and instruct. Of course, that is good, faithful pastoral advice from Pastor Charlie Henderson. And now we're going to push forward and talk about when it's a matter of public confession or persecution. And so we are picking up in the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 10, of church practices, which are called adiaphora, or matters of indifference. And this is paragraph 11, negative statement number three. In a time of persecution and public confession, when a clear confession is required, we may yield to the enemies of the gospel in such adiaphora and ceremonies or compromise with them, which damages the truth. All right, so Pastor Henriksen, before I throw this to you here, we did have a listener question. We have a couple of listener questions that I'd like to bring in today, but one that I think ties in really well with this. And so this comes to us from James. It says, when is it a matter of confession? And so he's been listening to the show and listening to the past couple episodes, and he wants to know, when is it a matter of confession? I know, as you talked about in the first half as well, you wanted to bring in as an example of this the matter in the 1800s with the Prussian Union. So go ahead and answer, when is this a matter of confession? What is it we're talking about here that we are rejecting that in times of persecution and public confession? Yeah, what the Lutherans here are rejecting is saying that things that otherwise would be okay to do or to say, but when it's being forced upon you as a matter of persecution, we are not to yield to the opponents in that situation. So things that otherwise you might say, well, that's okay, or that are not strictly wrong in themselves, but when it's being forced upon you and being persecuted for this in order to undermine the truth of the gospel, then we do not yield under that pressure. And the example, the primary example I use of that, uh, well, the original context was in the adiaphoristic controversy of late 1840s and early 1550s when Rome was trying to force this upon the Lutherans, where some yielded to Rome in that and others would not yield to it, that led to this article in the formula. 
But an application of this later on in history was in 1817, at the 300th anniversary of the Reformation, in the part of Germany called Prussia. Uh, there was not a united Germany at this point, but in uh, northeastern, we would say now northeastern Germany, a part called Prussia, the ruler there, Kaiser Frederick Wilhelm, who had both Reformed, that is Calvinist, and Evangelisch or Lutheran in his uh, territory, he didn't, <clears throat> excuse me, he didn't want the differences between the Reformed and the Lutherans to be a matter of division. So what he ordered was, in the distribution of the sacrament, that all of them had to say, Jesus says, this is my body, or Jesus says, this is my blood. Because technically speaking, strictly speaking, that's true. Jesus says, this is my body. Jesus says, this is my blood. Rather than what Lutherans would say, take eat the body of Christ, take and drink the blood of Christ, and so forth. By adding those words, Jesus says, then it sort of gave the impression you can make of what Jesus says here, make of it of as you will. So the Lutherans would not go along with this. I mean, the confessional Lutherans would not go along with this compromise because it was under force by the government and it was undermining, was giving the impression that you can make of it what you will. Well, Jesus says it, right? Who can be against that? Well, in the context, it no longer was a matter of indifference. It became a case of confession, a casus confessionis, because it was. there's no difference really between the Reformed Calvinist view and the Lutheran view on the sacrament, when there really is. So it was covering up, this is called unionism. It was covering up a difference in doctrine under the cover of these supposedly neutral words, which in the context were no longer neutral. So the genuine Lutherans there in Prussia would not go along with it. Some were persecuted, imprisoned for not going along with it. A whole bunch of them said, let's get out of here. Uh, we can't be Lutherans here now. So they got on a boat and came over to Buffalo, New York, or Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and settled here because of the governmental persecution there in Prussia. Yeah, and then wasn't also connected in with that same issue, the whole breaking of the bread in front of the congregation, which was kind of the Reformed way of saying, see, there's no Jesus in here. And we've kind of brought this up on the show before, especially when we were talking about under the article of the Lord's Supper. And and I think right. that, that helps us understand again here the question too, is breaking the bread as Jesus himself did in the words of institution, you know, on the night that he was betrayed, he took and he broke bread, right? We say that breaking the bread in and of itself is a matter of indifference. Jesus doesn't say, when you do this in remembrance of me, you have to break the bread too or anything like that. It's a matter of indifference itself. But when it gets forced upon us and we are told to do that practice especially when it's connected to a teaching that isn't something that we agree with and leads us away from, again, that central principle upon which Christian worship revolves around, which is justification by faith through God's grace, right? Then that's certainly leading us away from that understanding and saying, well, maybe this isn't Jesus for me for the forgiveness of my sins, right? That, that's what that practice yeah. will teach. And so forced upon us, now it's a matter of confession, right? Yeah, and that will vary according to the historical context and the immediate message. It's really what message is your action communicating? So like the fractio, the breaking of the bread, where the Calvinists would say, see, it's not Jesus' body because he said not one of his bones would be broken or something like that, which is quite a stretch. Jesus broke the bread simply to distribute it. So that, or let's say the elevation of the host could in a certain context, communicate a message, but in other contexts, it doesn't communicate a message. So that can vary. For example, like women wearing head coverings. In Corinth, in the first century, what Paul writes about, for a woman to not have her head covered would communicate a certain message. But in our culture now, it doesn't communicate the same message. So a lot of these practices, as long as you're maintaining the same biblical principle, you could have variants on some of these practices, but when they're being forced upon you to show there's no difference in our doctrine, 
or that, you know, to communicate a certain doctrinal message, then it becomes a matter of confession where you do not yield to that position. Right. So again, I think the, the key connecting understanding to this then is, is what is this rite or ceremony communicate and teach about the faith? Yeah. And, and that becomes an important consideration in this matter of, is it adiaphora or not? And I've brought up on the previous episodes, especially, you know, you talk about the elevation of the host that, you know, in my particular context, and again, not being mean here or anything like that, but I have encountered across the United States, really, LCMS Lutherans who are raised with the teaching that we have in our church that that is Christ's true body and blood in, with, and under the bread and wine. And they don't necessarily believe that. They've kind of been informed by the predominating Reformed view that just dominates Uh American evangelicalism. And they've come to a different understanding. And it's in part, again, not being mean here or anything like that, but we've just gotten a little more casual in how we do the Lord's Supper. And it tends to reflect more that Reformed thinking, even in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And so we don't really see anything significant going on there. And so that's where in my evaluation of my own pastoral practice, I bring back some of those things that give us the more sense of reverence and the sacred, because I intentionally want to communicate and teach my people, hey, this is really Christ's true body and blood in, with, and under this bread and wine for you, for their forgiveness, life, and salvation. And that is related then to that central principle. And so that connected teaching and understanding of what it is that we say in the rites and ceremony that we do is an important connection here then also, right? Yes. And this goes to a matter of, you say, uh, as you say, reverence and decorum and what best expresses and inculcates our theology about what's going on in the service. It should flow out of our theology and it should reinforce and teach our theology about what is going on in the divine service. And that will lead us, I think, into uh, point number four of the negative statements. And here is where I'd like to have a few minutes when we read that statement to talk about what Martin Chemnitz taught about edification and instruction and order and decorum and upholding the value of uniformity in worship practices. All right. Well, let me go ahead and look at number four. Yeah, let me go ahead and read that then, and then we'll certainly bring you back with that here. Negative statement number four, paragraph 12, from the Epitome of Formula of Concord, Article 10 of Church Practices. When these outward ceremonies and adiaphora are abolished as though the community of God, the churches of God, were not free to use one or more ceremonies in Christian freedom, according to its circumstances— as may be most useful at any time for the church for edification. All right, so you had some great things on Chemnitz, one of the formulators and confessors of the Formula of Concord. Go ahead and bring that in for us. Yeah, Chemnitz, in this particular statement that is being rejected, that we're not free to use certain more or less ceremonies. So what we want to uphold is, it's like a scale where you want to balance. On the one side, you have freedom, on the other side, you have order and reverence and instruction and edification, okay? So we want to uphold both principles, that we can have some freedom and flexibility in liturgical practices, but at the same time, we don't throw out traditions and customs and practices that are very helpful and that reflect our theology. So I had done, this was 20 years ago, I had done a paper on uh, Martin Kennedy. The context for this was I kept hearing from the contemporary worship people, well, see, we believe in adiaphora, so therefore we can do whatever we want, and also we're autonomous. You know, each congregation can do whatever it wants. And as long as we're not disagreeing, as long as we're not violating the gospel, then it's a matter of indifference, and uh, you can't say that anything is right or wrong. Well, that position, I think, goes too far. And so I wrote this paper on Kenneth's on rites and ceremonies, and if anybody wants it, we can make it available to them. Since Kenneth was the main guy behind Article 10 of the formula, what did he write elsewhere about Adiaphora, and what was his practice? Because he was a uh, superintendent for his region. We would call it like a circuit visitor for or a district president almost. And is that a fair reflection of what Kenneth taught and practice to say, you know, in the name of the two A words, adiaphora and autonomy, you can just do whatever you want. And what I found out was 
that would not reflect Kennedy. So, for example, again, we're running to uphold two points, Christian freedom and flexibility, but also good order, reverence, decorum, edification. So Chemnitz writes, he wrote a, a paper on Adiaphora back in 1561. And this paragraph highlights these three points of edification, decorum, and order. And I'll read a quote from here, a paragraph. Chemnitz writes, and I judge that such rights, again, R-I-T-E-S, should certainly be retained and preserved, which, first of all, make for edification, that men may be invited to the word, the sacraments, and to other exercises of piety, that the doctrine may be more aptly set forth, valued more, received more eagerly, and better retained, and that penitence, faith, prayer, piety, and mercy may be kindled and cherished, etc. Secondly, those which serve good order, for there it is necessary that in the public meetings of the church there be order worthy of churchly dignity. Thirdly, those which make for decorum. Now, by decorum, we understand not theatrical pomp or courtly splendor, but such decorum as shows by means of external rites the honor in which we hold the word, the sacraments, and the remaining churchly functions, and by which others are invited to reverence toward the word, the sacraments, and the assemblies of the church. Now, I have more to say from Chemnitz here, but I think, Sean, what you were saying about are we too casual in our culture with the holy things of God? And maybe, you know, the pendulum is swung more over on that side. So that, that's one point that Chemnitz makes about edification, order, and decorum. And one of the Did things you have anything you wanted Well, yeah, one of the things that runs through my mind, especially as you're reading that from Chemnitz there is it, it keeps highlighting order and of course there's a great work by Chemnitz that's been published and we talked about on the previous episode briefly that's available through Concordia Publishing House of Chemnitz on church order and so he he certainly would have been about order and what kept running through my mind when it comes to order is 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40, right? Yep. Which clearly says but all things should be done decently and in order. And now that often gets talked about, well, that's just talking about speaking in tongues. And and we're not saying, you know, we want that. We're not going the Pentecostal route or anything. We're just talking about some other things. But does 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40 and what it says about things in the church being done decently and in order and Chemnitz's idea of order fit in here? Yeah, I think so. You know, and earlier in the article in the formula, he talks about, he says, all frivolity and offense should be avoided in this matter. So we have freedom, but we also have love for one another and reverence. You know, in the, in the uh, both the Augsburg Confession and in the Apology, uh, the Lutherans say, we observe the Mass with the greatest reverence. So uh, dignity, reverence, order, as well as, of course, joy and praise and so forth, it's all good. So, yeah. Well, and then I guess this is also a fitting place to bring in the other listener question that we received. And this comes from Terry, and I, I think it's a, a female Terry. Sorry if it's a male Terry, uh, but I think it connects in with freedom, but also love for one another and how we consider these things. Terry, she writes this, when might compromise be acceptable in the church? Well, as I said earlier, sometimes as a pastor, you know this, Sean, and we've talked about this in your own personal situation a couple of years ago. What sometimes, as a pastor, I'll put it in quotes, have to put up with when they think there's a better practice, but you let it go for a while, you want consensus. You want to bring the people along, if possible. You know, patient instruction. So things that you don't think are necessarily the absolute best, you may put up with for a little while if it isn't destroying the gospel, you know? Yeah, you're talking about a, a couple of practices that I inherited, and one in specific was the singing of a song that's not included in our hymnal and probably not best. It was done with the best of intentions. It yeah. was the hymn, God Bless America, was sung at the end of every service that I that we had here in the dual parish I serve. And I just wanted us to consider, and we talked about, and, and it eventually came to an end through the congregational vote. I let them 
decide it. And, and of course, there's always some that still kind of hold on to, to difficult feelings. Emotions get tied up in these things as well. But yeah. understand that those were done with good intent. They literally viewed it as, as sort of a prayer to God. But there were very good reasons why that hymn is not included in our hymnal and probably shouldn't be a part of our regular worship service, especially as it's part of almost like it's part of the liturgy. But my mind also jumps to another practice that I inherited that as the offerings, which we're not going to do now underneath this uh, pandemic concerns and so forth, just not passing the offering plates, but as the offering plates would be brought forward, they would stand and sing the common doxology. And again, it's kind of like that has become part of the liturgy around here in my dual parish. And that's one where I say, you know what? It's fine. It's it's a hymn that's in our hymnal. It's yeah. it's maybe not the best idea to keep adding to the liturgy, especially as LCMS Lutherans right. are always worried about how we can shorten things up and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it's it's perfectly fine. It, it's a hymn that's included in our hymnal and done with a, a right motivation. And so that's where we simply say, hey, yeah, we can compromise here and effectively alter the liturgy of our church in this dual parish setting. And it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to bring up from chemists, we talk about adiaphora, and what I call the other A word is autonomy. And that's the idea that every congregation in its extreme form, every congregation can do whatever it wants because it, it's up to you. We have autonomy in our synod. And therefore, if, you, if I do something in this parish, you can't say that I'm doing anything wrong about, or that that's not a good practice. Well, chemists would not go along with that. Uh, he says, and I'll read a couple of other things from Chemnitz's writings, both either from the Eudicium of 1561, or later he wrote an examination of the Council of Trent tradition and church practices and so forth. So listen to this in terms of just any individual pastor on a whim, change the liturgy and go throw out the hymnal and go all different from week to week with no thought of how this impacts both the people and other congregations or the pastor who might follow him. So, here's a little more chemists. Indeed, for the sake of order and decorum, it should not be permitted to everyone willfully, without the decision and consent of the church, just because he desires it, either to omit or change anything, even in external and indifferent things. Again, from chemists, about these rights being changed. Uh, They can be omitted or be changed or abrogated by the direction and consent of the church, for this should not be permitted privately to the whim of anyone, like an individual pastor, just to throw out the liturgy. Uh, And then Kenneth, as I said, he was the superintendent of this territory called Braunschweig, and he wanted all the churches in that territory, and they agreed to this, to follow the same basic liturgical order on Sunday morning and other times during the week. So in 1567, Chemnitz writes to all clergy in Braunschweig, and he says, we must all stick together as we have in the past and retain the practice that each does not build up himself or act as Lord in his congregation and do what he pleases in preaching, administration of the sacraments, liturgical practices, discipline and the other aspects of his office, acting only according to his own ideas, but rather all these things shall be and remain the business of the entire ministerium, so that in the whole circuit or district, they would all want to have the same basic service on Sunday morning. And the goal was that in ceremonies that the neighboring churches of this principality have as much similarity as possible so that the disparity in rights would not result in offense being taken by the undiscerning and by those Christians who are not adequately trained in God's word. And actually, they had a what was called a Kirchenordnung, a church order for Braunschweig-Hufenbittel, which is very specific, which is basically like our common service, Divine Service 3 in Lutheran Service Book. And uh, Chemnitz introduces that by saying, the intent is not that now absolutely no order in ceremony should be maintained. No, he doesn't want that. So he says, there should be such ceremonies which give the external indication that in the congregation, great, high, serious dealings are present, and that the ceremonies would do that. It is therefore viewed as good that as much as possible, 
a uniformity in ceremonies with neighboring churches be affected and maintained, and so that the pastors would not depart from this order without, quote, specific grave cause. And you know, Sean, when Walther and the others started the Missouri Synod, that was in the original Missouri Synod Constitution, that it's desirable as much as possible to have uniformity in ceremonies. And I think in our practice, while we certainly maintain freedom and local custom, I think the pendulum has swung way far over into not enough uniformity instead of too much uniformity. Yeah, I think back when I did college ministry early on in my pastoral ministry, I had a college student who moved from another part of the country for college and was worshiping our congregation. And she just very simply said, you know, it's kind of maddening that I'm still within the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but what I get at home is completely different from what I'm getting here. And so much so that it's disorienting. And I, and I really don't even feel welcome in another LCMS church just simply because everything just seems so different. And there were a variety of reasons for why that was. And so I think that that's very instructive. And I, you can go back and listen to last week's episode. I brought this out specifically with what American businesses and well, worldly businesses understand is that you should be able to go into any of their businesses anywhere in the world and know how to order and function. And I've certainly experienced that both as an employee of some of those businesses and also as a customer, that there is a certain comfort level when you know what you're doing in there. But yeah. somehow in the church, we seem to have thrown that all out the window in the name of Christian freedom. And it mm-hmm. doesn't actually promote any unity. It just confuses people and makes it more difficult for them, right? Yeah, and there's this principle, lex orandi, lex credendi. The, the law of worshiping, the law of believing. In other words, the way you worship has an effect on what and how you believe. And so if you're going to look just like the non-denominational church in your practice, people are going to get the wrong impression, and you know it's going to affect their belief system, and that there's not really much difference. And if you downplay the key doctrines of the Christian faith just for entertainment and performance, you're not really serving those people as well as you can. So just because things are adiaphora doesn't mean we can't have a discussion about what's better. Some things may be better than other things. Absolutely. And I might also add, if you worship like a Lutheran, you just might be a Lutheran, right? You might have a Lutheran confession. Well, that's certainly a great thought. Sorry that we kind of got to end there and wrap up the show, but uh, Pastor Charlie Hendrickson, it's been great having you back on Concord Matters with us today. Thank you for talking us through this Article 10 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord on matters of church practices, which are called adiaphora or matters in difference. Thank you, dear brother, for your faithful confession and leading us in this discussion. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. Thank you for your questions that were helpful, especially in this episode. Keep sending those in. Until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>